Hello and welcome to GabFest Reads for August 2023. I'm Emily Bazelon, one of the hosts of Slate's Political GabFest. I'm here with David Plotz and John Dickerson. Hey, David. Hey, Emily. Hey, John. Hey, Emily. We are thrilled to be talking with Barbara Kingsolver about her recent book, Demon Copperhead, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction this year. Barbara, welcome to GapFest Reads. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. David and John and I usually take turns interviewing writers, but today we're all here because we all want to talk about this book. So Demon Copperhead is a recasting of David Copperfield, the classic novel by Charles Dickens. And Barbara, you're following the path that Dickens laid out to tell the story in his time of a boy growing up in 19th century England. And you're telling the story of a boy growing up in our times in Appalachia. I've wanted to ask you for so long, why Dickens? And as your source of inspiration, I especially want to know this now because I was reading a recent essay in The New Yorker by Zadie Smith, and she was disparaging Dickens as being too sentimental, too theatrical, too moralistic, and too controlling. And it just made me so curious because you have sought him out as a a source of material and inspiration. And why is that? He showed me the way into a story that I had found impossible to write for several years. I spent close to three years absolutely sure that I wanted to tell the story of what's happening to my community, our communities here in Appalachia, um, as a result of the opioid epidemic. And I wanted to tell like the bigger story, uh, sort of the whole context, uh, the whole historical context of how this region has been exploited by big capital for for centuries and how that has shaped the identity of this region and how it has created institutional poverty here. It has suppressed our culture of education. It has done all kinds of things that we Appalachians get blamed for. I think that outsiders look at this region as backward, this whole hillbilly stereotype of these shiftless people who lack the ambition to get a proper education and, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, etc. These are my people. I'm Appalachian. That's my identity. This is home. This is the place. And these are the people that I love who make me who I am, who make me, you know, happy to be alive. The story I wanted to tell was about the orphans, really, literally, the orphans of the epidemic, of whom we have an entire generation here coming up through our school system, and how little is being done for them, and how these are the throwaway kids of a very wealthy society. Who wants to hear that story? I just really felt blocked. I couldn't find a way in. And then... um, through a very strange circumstance, I had a visit from from Dickens, this sort of ethereal visit in his house in um, in Broadstairs, and he told me to tell this story. He said, "Look, nobody in my time wanted to hear about these orphans either, and I made them listen. I sat up and took note, and what he told me is, point of view is your tool. Let the child tell the story." And I started writing it that night on his desk, the desk in his house at Broadstairs, uh, where he wrote uh, David Copperfield. And it was, listen, okay, I've, Zadie Smith has her opinion about, you know, this guy 
who is too sentimental, too moralistic, too uh, too uncool, and that is all fine and good. And I, you know, I, I love Zadie Smith, and I think she does great work. But let me also tell you that when Dickens wrote his novels about structural poverty and orphans and these stories nobody wanted to hear, they were lined up on the docks to receive the, to get the next installment of the story when it was, you know, when they were delivered by ship. So um, I think the bottom line here is a crackerjack plot, really great characters and point of view. Let the kid tell the story. I needed to make this a galloping tale. I needed to make it funny, memorable, fast paced, all of those things. And um, and use use the uh, the tools that Dickens gave us to make this a story that people would read. It, that gave me confidence. And I will also say that my story is substantially less sentimental than uh, than David Copperfield. David Copperfield, bless his heart, is this wide, uh, you know, this kind of starry eyed kid who says, "Well, mommy has a new boyfriend. Hope he'll be nice." Well, you know. My David Copperfield, my demon, um, <laughs> says it, it is, he's like on to this guy. This is like the day he moves in, he's, the demon says, nope, this is not going to be good news. So he's just a lot more savvy. He's a 20th century and 21st century kid. He can't be as naive. Not that any kid now can be quite that naive, but especially one who's been basically taking care of his own mother since he was out of diapers. That was such an inspiring answer, uh, Barbara. I was, as a child, my father read David Copperfield to me. And so I'm acutely aware of how vivid the dialogue is in that book. And I think what's incredible, my girlfriend was just listening to Demon Copperhead as an audiobook, And you've done an amazing job in capturing the voices of the people you're writing about. And I just am interested in what your process was to do that, how did you channel that language and and kind of invent this? I mean, I guess you didn't fully invent, but you there was some act of creation of this voice of of demon, which is amazing voice. This is my my native language. I grew up listening to Appalachian talk, and what you're hearing from me right now isn't exactly. Appalachian uh, vernacular, I, I code switch, you know, and I, I learned very soon after I moved from Appalachia that if if I talk the way I grew up talking, people have their opinions of who I am. And I gradually developed another uh, sort of another affect that I present to the outer world so that people would stop making fun of the way I pronounced words and listening listen to what I was saying. But I could kind of gradually bring you into those waters, ultimately surround you in the bath of this, of this, what I think is a beautiful language so that you could appreciate it. But I just didn't dump you into the, um, the deep end of that, well, bathtub to uh, use a very torn metaphor. For example, I very specifically didn't, there are words that are trigger, you know, sort of triggers for people's judgment. The word holler, uh, the word, reckon, I reckon, which is so interesting because when British people or Australians say I reckon, that sounds high class. But when 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 I say it, I reckon um, you just like you put the straw hat on me in your mind. So I could ease you into it. One thing I absolutely hate in the in in printed books um, 
is uh, what I call Uncle Remus spelling, so that where where uh, people use misspelled words to to represent pronunciation, uh, vernacular pronunciation. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I hate that because it's condescending. When you know when we speak, our language here is is ab- is. I mean, you know, of course, obviously there's. There is substandard speech, but it isn't wrong to say, I reckon he's gone up there in the holler. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I'm not going to misspell things and suggest otherwise. But I will, I will tell you, the first draft, I got about a hundred and uh, I got about 200 pages in. And then I just thought, just for curiosity, I did a search. How many times has Demon dropped the F-bomb? in the first 200 pages. And the answer was like 175 times it was probably too much. Um, and other things, you know, the way his anger toward, you know, outsiders judgment of his people, you know, all of these things were too ratcheted up in the beginning. So I had to really think about, you know, through draft after draft after draft, cause that's the way I work, um, really shaping that voice so that you, I really, I want you to want to adopt this kid to get you on his side. And then by the end, I think you're probably just as, as, as mad as he is um, at, at the way, the way our country has failed him. And that's the goal, but it's just like, how do you do it? You just do it. That's the work. That's what I do at this desk every day is work and work and work and redraft until the voice just is, as clear on the page as, as it is the way I hear it in my head. One of my favorite expressions of his is when he talks about things happening on accident, as opposed to by accident, that, that was just, just one of the many perfect parts of the way he talks. Barbara, how you mentioned that you, you made him less angry. Were there, did you also um, go through a process of restraint on making in terms of his superhero quality. I mean, so he survives. Did you ever think, no, that's, I've made him, too, I don't want to turn him into a superhero beyond the scope of this, or was, was part of your restraint um, uh, exercised in that, in that fashion? Well, he has to survive. I mean, <laughs> or we don't have a story. Rita, he can't tell the story. Uh, and um, I, I think you're saying, is he too much of a survivor? Is he too good at survival? He's very flawed, which I think we're, and this is part of the the, the genius of Dickens that D- Dickens handed off to me of letting him tell the story. I think a danger here, a potential danger or, or, or a risk is that people, okay, this book is presenting how it is in Appalachia. And there are a lot of things that we deal with here that urban people probably can't even imagine. Like the fact that uh, the character Dory has to drop out of school in order to take her father to his doctor's appointments because the nearest heart-lung specialist or you know oncologist or other specialist he needs to see are a hundred or more miles away and he's too incapacitated to drive. So she has to drive him, you know, make these five hour round trips to his doctors once or twice a week. And that's incompatible with going to school. This is real. This is what we deal with here. I waited seven months to see an ENT. And this is me, a person of means who's able to like get angry on the, on the telephone or, you know, 
tactfully angry and, and insist to talk to somebody's manager. I had to convey a world that I thought people might not believe or might think I was exaggerating. And But I think the advantage of the, the child narrator, the naive narrator, is he's not canny enough to exaggerate. I mean, you just believe it, and um, or at least I hope you do, because he's presenting this as the only world he's ever known. So he's just like, well, of course you had to drop out of school because you know doctors. Yeah, there is the superhero quality that he has. In addition to his, he has an extraordinary talent to draw. And that's, you know, I tried to make that believable. I mean, some kids, you know, you see on social media who, who can play the piano like like nothing you've ever heard when they're five years old. So I tried to make that the development of his his drawing, his cartooning talent sort of grow before you, uh, your eyes little by little. Um, but his talent for survival, his resilience is just something he was born with that some, you know, and there's, I've read research on this. There's just, I mean, it might be genetic. Some kids can come through really hard things and, you know, be sort of like that steel filament that does not bend or break um, with with high temper heat or whatever. And and people notice that about Demon. Um, the first time he talks to a counselor at school, the counselor has looked through all of his, you know, his, his huge file of all of all of the foster care failures and, you know, everything that's happened to him. And and Mr. Armstrong says, well, one thing I know about you is you are, you have resilience. And um, demon, poor demon says, are you going to give me drugs for that? He just thinks it's just one more diagnosis that's being laid on him when really he's just a mad kid who's just up against a lot of, a lot of problems. One of my favorite lines in this book, which Demon says early on, is that a kid is a terrible thing to be in charge of nothing. I felt like the character of his mother was crucial for pulling me into the book and for giving me a sense of empathy about the adults. I mean, there are many failures and neglects and wrong-headed moves by adults in this story, including Demon's mother, but she's also intensely alive. And I wonder if you also kind of poured a lot of effort in developing her as a character. I did, of course. Almost every character in Demon Copperhead has a corresponding character in David Copperfield. That was it was just kind of a marvel to me once I decided to do this that I could lay out that novel. I actually did it in a spreadsheet. There are, I believe 66 chapters and I made a, you know, like a little cell with each chapter and then the uh sort of the action and characters of each chapter and then I built my corresponding cells beneath. And it, I mean, I had to invent, there are a couple of pure inventions, maggot, there is no maggot in, uh, in David Copperfield, but demon needed a best friend. You know, he really needed that kid to be his, his guy, but demon's mother, you know, to use the character of mother who has no first name in, in David Copperfield and therefore also has no first name in, in my novel, um, she was kind of a, she was kind of an empty space. She was kind of a blank. I I, I decided early on. I think I'm I think I'm maybe if uh, forgive the hubris. I think I know more about women than Dickens did. 
Um, and I think that I put, I invested more in my female characters, you know, likewise, Angus, maybe we'll get onto Angus later. Um, Agnes, Ag Agnes in, uh, in David Copperfield is this sort of angelic, you know, this guardian angel. And my Angus has a lot more going on than that. She's, she's tough in her own right. And she has her own stuff. And likewise, um, David's mother had her own stuff. If I'm if I'm if I'm looking at structural poverty and you know sort of these institutional uh, um, sort of incapacities that get handed down, and it well really it's trauma, it's generational trauma, and um, you might in the beginning be pretty pretty disappointed in demon's mom uh the fact that she she's she's so dysfunctional i mean that she needs her eight-year-old kid to find her keys and wake her up and get her to work on time and remind her to go to the grocery and all that um and that she takes on um, this this boyfriend um stoner who's clearly an abuser and uh, you know you have a lot of reasons to 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 be mad at her, but little by little, and actually throughout the entire novel, you learn more and more about her. The fact that she herself was raised in foster care, she was dumped out of the foster care system at 18 with no place to go, no skills, no home. Uh, you do what you have to do, but little by little, as he comes through his own experience of foster care, of addiction, of, of, of limited choices in his teenage years. And he, you know, as he approaches the age that his mother, well, he actually passes the age his mother uh, of his mother when she had him, he gets it and he forgives her. Um, and he, uh, you know, sort of, he embraces her as part of his for better and for worse of that trauma, but the love that she, you know, the fact that she, she created him um, as an act of love. Uh, she wanted somebody in a, in a lifetime of no, nobody who'd ever attached to her. She had this kid because she wanted somebody to love who would love her back. Barbara, we're a political show normally. And I think Demon Copperhead is fascinating because it's a, it's a novel where there's a huge amount of politics at stake, but there is no politics in it. Like, people are not talking about politics. You know, they don't seem to have political valence for most of their discussions. They're certainly not like looking at national issues. I wonder if you had written this book about the last five years, as opposed to about in a pre-Trump Appalachia, whether politics would have infected it more than it does. Well, I absolutely wrote this in a post-Trump world. Well, I mean, we can all wish for a post-Trump world, but a, a post-Trump presidency world, um, a very divided world. I was well aware um, that I was writing into this, uh, this, this chasm that exists right now between urban and rural political alliances, beliefs, and, and identities. And because I am, I, I do live in a, a rural place, but I've also spent a lot of time in cities. I feel like an ambassador between those worlds. And one, one of the things I hoped, and of course, you know, I mean, the politics are, everything is there, but it's just subtext. It's 
you know, the, the uh, failure of, of social networks, the fact that, or social, you know, welfare networks, the fact that the foster care system is run as a for-profit business, you know, which is something that uh, Demon himself learns from his, his caseworker and how stretched thin and how few resources um, our, our taxpaying public in this very wealthy country is willing to invest in things like making sure these kids in Appalachia have enough to eat, have enough social workers to find decent homes for them. Um, this is all the subtext. And again, I mean, Demon is just living through it. He's not removed from it in a way that he can give you an analysis of it. He's just living it. And that's what I can do as a novelist is to sort of bring you into the world and let you make up your own mind about it. But one thing, um, a couple of things that I thought, I mean, ideally I might accomplish with this novel is to bring people into a world to give them more compassion for this huge rural swath of America that has endured so much condescension, so much invisibility, honestly, um, you know, never seeing ourselves portrayed on, on television or in the movies, because all of our media, all of our entertainment and our newspapers and journalism, it's all made in cities. We don't see ourselves unless we are portrayed as, you know, as the dumb hillbilly, a bad joke, or a poverty documentary. We're well aware what you think of us, you know, what they think of us. Is At one point, there are these moments when um, Demon talks to you, the reader, directly. You know, he sort of steps out, he breaks the fourth wall, and he, he talks to you, and he, he says, look, we know what you're saying about us. Do you think we don't have cable? This sort of boiling just outrage that we we are being treated and discussed as second class citizens has reached a level of desperation that has led people honestly to follow the first bully who comes along and says, lying through his teeth, it turns out, but who says, look, I see you and I'm going to blow up the system. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a mark of desperation that people are willing to follow somebody who seems honestly crazy because they're that desperate for change because nobody is paying attention. I think it's, I think it's really interesting that every, um, every interview that I've done has begun with questions about people say Appalachia and, and I'm really polite and I don't like to correct people on air, but I subtly do. We are Appalachian. The way we see, the way we say it is Appalachia. 100%. That's how we say, that's who we are. And I find it so interesting that even 100 miles outside of here, people don't know how to, we pronounce Appalachia. Nobody says Florida or <laughs> Chicago, you know, because we've all heard those regions discussed, you know, a million times on television or on the radio or whatever. And we have, we, and those regions have been discussed by people who live there. Those regions are represented. Appalachia is so, um, so unrepresented, you know, in mainstream media that people don't even know how to pronounce it. I introduced it as Appalachia at the top of the episode, and I would go back and change it, except that would be fake. And I'll just leave it in as a tell about myself. Instead. <laughs> just to prove your point. John, you go ahead. 
We can hear you is one of the great, when Demon says, you know, we, uh, it's just one of the great times when he breaks the fourth wall. Barbara, did you have an experience in the response to this? Um, all through reading it, I kept thinking of um, Upton Sinclair who said, I aim for the, with the jungle, I aim for the public's heart and I hit them in the stomach. Have you had any experience like that where, you know, a, a lot of this is subtext, which is where the art comes in. And so um, you can feel it. But, but I can also imagine uh, people having a misimpression. How, how have you um, registered the response, not just the popular acclaim, but just in terms of the, what you were trying to convey about life in Appalachia? I would describe it as a journey of absolute amazement, and I am so grateful to readers. I'll, I'll just say that readers of literary fiction are amazing people. I've had so many, I mean, just open-minded. I've had so many communications. It's some of it is, you know, I still actually get fan mail with stamps on it, but it's mostly electronic now. But um, I've heard from so many urban people who have said, you gave me something to think about. I have, I need to re-examine my prejudices. I had no idea. I was, you know, I had this bigotry against against people in, you know, in MAGA country or just, you know, rural, uh, not just hillbillies, but, you know, farmers and rural people in general as, as kind of, you know, you might not say this in polite company, but just kind of the assumption that they're living second class lives or they are, you know, as, as Demon would put it, they're junior varsity people who just couldn't quite get it together to live in a city and have a, a you know, a true realized existence. You know, just examining all of these unspoken prejudices. And I'm so grateful, not to mention, you know, what people say about I understand more now about addiction as as a, dis, a disease rather than a failure failure of morality or virtue. Um, what people are saying about how we really need to invest more of our resources in you know in every in so many things from the foster care system to rural health care to addiction services and and all of the rest. So there's been that wonderful thing. The other wonderful thing is the response that I have had from Appalachians and from so many people who have said, I feel, I, I feel that the tragedies in my family, the losses I've suffered, I, the things that I've endured, I feel you have, you have seen them, you have put them on the map, you have, you have helped us to feel valid uh, in our, you know, in our, and our tragedies and our and our and the beauties of our lives. I've heard from um, I've heard from several people who grew up in the foster care system who say, "This is the first time I've ever I've ever believed that anybody outside of this system got it was paying attention." That's just so touching that this book could be both a mirror and and a window, as as we say about books. Um, and again, I think that the the democracy of literature is, is such a, such a valuable tool that, you know, if you can tell a good story, you can, you can reach all kinds of people who didn't necessarily know they would be interested in a subject like institutional poverty in Appalachia. 
Barbara King Solver is the author of Demon Copperhead, a book full of heart about growing up in Appalachia. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me on and your uh, your wonderful questions. That's it for this month's edition of GabFest Reads. Our producer is Shana Roth. Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations of Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. We'll be back next month with another edition of GabFest Reads. Until then, the three of us will be back in your feed on Thursday with a new episode of the Slate Political Cap.